This episode of The Big Wake Up Call is brought to you by people who talk about their diet. I think I speak for everyone when I say my life would be meaningless without constant updates about how much spinach you mixed into your morning smoothie. Welcome back to the show. It is time for my next guest, who is the co-founder of the Carlisle Group and a New York Times bestselling author. His new book is How to Invest Masters on the Craft, and I'm happy to once again welcome David Rubenstein. Good morning. My pleasure. I'm happy to be in Chicago today, actually, and uh, happy to talk to you. Oh, are you physically in Chicago? I, I am. I am at the University of Chicago right now. I uh, serve as the chairman of the board of the University of Chicago, and we have a retreat starting here today, and so I'm here. Oh, we should have had you drop by. We've got uh, we got a whole pot of coffee going. Okay, well, next time. <laughs> but I am happy to say with today's appearance, you are in our four-timers club, so just one visit away from a hat, T-shirt, or mug. So if you need an incentive to write wow. another book, there you go. Okay, well, that's the reason I'm going to do it. (laughs) New book, How to Invest, Masters on the Craft. Can you share with us briefly what the book is about? Sure. I interviewed the greatest investors in the United States in different categories with the idea of uh, letting average people know what it takes to be a great investor, not because by reading this book you're going to be a Warren Buffett, but by kind of giving you a sense of what it takes to be a good investor and also giving you some advice that I have about what it takes to be an average investor and making sure you know what you're doing with your money, how to give it to people that know what they're doing if you're using other outside people. So it's basically a how-to for average investors using the idea of best investors as people who are role models. And I know it's hard to choose with so many important guests in the book. And I think a lot of people will be familiar with someone like Sam Zell or or Larry Fink, right. who who were you most interested, most excited about speaking with? Who was really like number one on your on your number one or two, three on your guest list? Well, um, it's like asking me which of my three children I'm most sure. excited about. But exactly. I'll answer your question this way: uh, Stan Druckenmiller, uh, a great investor uh, who used to work for George Soros, is one of the smartest investors in the in the United States and the world. Uh, he's a great investor, and I talked to as you mentioned, Sam Zell who lives in Chicago, is one of the greatest yeah. real estate investors in the country and the world. Talk to him as well. Michael Moritz, who is the greatest adventure capital investor probably in the world for the last decade or so. Um, those are some really, really exciting people. But I interviewed a number of people who are not your typical white male investors. I wanted to in- indicate to people that you don't have to be an old white man to be a great investor. And a lot of women and, and people of um, uh, diverse backgrounds are in the book. For example, John Rogers, um, who is with me on the University of Chicago board. He's vice chairman. Uh, he's built a firm called Ariel Capital, built based in Chicago, and it's the largest African-American-owned investment company in the United States. Were there barriers for a long time as far as diversity and getting into investing? Um, I think it's fair to say that yes. Uh, um, most of the people who've been famous investors for 20 or 30 or 40 years are white men. And now they're older white men. Uh, but now, as business schools increasingly bring people in of diverse backgrounds, they are going into the investment world, and you're seeing more women, more people of diverse backgrounds, which is a good thing for the investment world. 
Who would you say are some of the most revolutionary investors that you've spoken with? Who do you feel really, you know, shook things up a whole different perspective when it came to investing? Well, there's a person I interviewed named Mike Novogratz, who early on was talking about something called Bitcoin, and nobody knew what he was talking about. And he became maybe one of the largest investors in cryptocurrencies, which is obviously a controversial area. But uh, he's made a great deal of money in doing that, and I think uh, other people have as well. Some people have lost money in it. But that's a person who's done something that many people said you shouldn't be doing, yet he did it and made a lot of money doing it. Different types of investments, obviously, so many things to invest in. Did you find there's a common thread amongst uh, your guests in the book when it comes to investing? Yes. They tend to come from lower uh, income families, middle class or blue collar. They tend not to come from wealthy families. They tend to have good math skills. They tend to be very good, have been very good students. They tend to have a pretty good work quotient. They like to make the final decisions. They make mistakes, recognize it, and get over them very quickly. They go against the conventional grain, whatever the conventional wisdom is. They go against it. They ultimately tend to be people that work because they enjoy it and they don't need the money anymore because it's such much pleasure for them. And they tend to be very philanthropic. David, what was your initial entry into investing? How did you begin your career as an investor? Uh, I worked in the White House for President Carter. I'm a lawyer by training at the University of Chicago Law School. And I, uh, when we lost the election to Ronald Reagan in 1980, I went back and practiced law. But in 1987, I started the uh, first private equity firm in Washington, D.C. It's grown to be one of the largest in the world called the Carlisle Group. And so that's how I got into it. But what was your okay? So you were uh, working in the white. What was your background before that? Like, what encouraged you to sort of, you know, where where did you come up with the knowledge that you needed to you know, initially dip your toe into it? I, I didn't have any knowledge. I hired people as my partners who actually knew what they were doing. So, uh, you know, I was kind of the entrepreneur who put things together. I, I learned by osmosis. I really didn't go to business school at the University of Chicago, just the law school. So I learned on the training, on the on the job. I had been trained as a corporate lawyer, but I, you know, really didn't know much about investing. And over the years, I've learned a fair bit about it, but not I'm not a perfect investor for sure. You mentioned earlier about giving your money to people who know what they're doing with it. What, what are some, like one of our listeners, you know, has, has some money they want to invest. They're looking for the yes. outside. Well, what, what are some things we should be looking for? All right, these are the things you should look for. Invest with people that have a track record. Make sure you understand the track record. Make sure the people that produce the track record are still there. Make sure the fees are understandable. Make sure you you can get access to the information how your fund is performing at any given time. Make sure that uh, the organization is one that has a reputation for um, a, a truthfulness and dealing with investors well. It's not being sued for fraud or those kind of things. Yeah. Make sure you have realistic expectations or rates of return. And make sure, in, in the end, that you really understand what you're you're doing and you diversify. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Is there such a thing as a safe investment, or is it always going to be a little bit of uh, fluctuation and and luck involved? Well, if you put your money in the bank uh, or buy U.S. Treasury bills, it's pretty likely that you won't lose your money, but you might get a return that's very modest, maybe below even the inflation rate. So there's nothing that's perfect, uh, obviously. Index funds for the average person probably makes the most sense. A bond index fund, an ETF, a stock index fund. You'll track the market with modest fees. That may be the most sensible thing for the average person. And then finally, okay, I looked earlier. As an example, I have $64 in cash in my wallet. What would be the best thing to do with that cash other than, you know, blow it on, on breakfast or lunch or something? 
Well, $64 may not be enough to really um, uh, spend that much time on. But, you know, I would say for $64, I would probably keep it in my wallet for the time being. Perfect. Uh, The brand new book, it is called How to Invest Masters on the Craft by my guest, who is a new Four Timers Club member, David Rubenstein. David, always great to have you on the show. Please come back again. And uh, and next time you're in the city, let's uh, let's meet up. I'll do it. Thank you. Bye. This portion of the Big Wake Up Call is brought to you by the Grade School Car Pickup Line. They can put up all the signs they want, but some people will just never get it. Right, Heather? My next guest is an award-winning New York Times best-selling author. His newest book is The Door of No Return. It is now available where books are sold. And we are going to visit with Kwame Alexander. And welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Ray. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Things are good. You know, I'm worried about all the people who are dealing and suffering from Hurricane Ian's. Yeah you know, deadly past. I have friends who've been evacuated. I'm on the East Coast, and I do hear that we'll get some remnants of this. But, uh, you know, I'm hopeful and prayerful that everybody's going to be okay. Your new book, it is The Door of No Return. Can you briefly share with us what uh, the book is about? It's about a boy who likes a girl. He's got a crush on this girl. And, And he's got a cousin who's a bully who likes the same girl and beats him in everything, in racing and wrestling. And and his best friend gets an idea. He's like, you're a good swimmer. Challenge your cousin to a swim-off. And then once you beat him, you'll be the new man. You'll be the guy. Yeah. And so he challenges his cousin. And uh, he thinks if he beats his cousin, he's going to win the heart of the girl. And so he practices swimming in the river every day after school. And he's getting faster. And the night before the swim-off, even though he's been told the water is cursed at night, he goes down to the river to get one more session in and he's fast and he's swimming and he can't wait to beat his cousin. And he comes out of the river and what happens next changes his life and changes the course of history and brings him face to face with a door that which there's no return. I'm just trying to think how much energy is spent around that age trying to impress a girl. Like if we could harness that energy for something else, we could probably solve the world's problems. Exactly. But it is the world's problem for us. Yeah. I know it was for me when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. It was for me with Myra and Leslie. I still remember their names, these girls in my church who I just loved so dearly. But yeah, it becomes everything you think about. And I think Really, what it means is that you are trying to get in touch with that part of you that cares deeply about something that is not yourself. And that's a beautiful place to be, you know, and and it's, and it's a heavy place and it's a challenging place. But absolutely, I agree with you. When you start writing a book, well, first of all, when do you know you're ready to sit down and write? Because I talk with a lot of novelists, and sometimes they tend to be on the same schedule. They'll do one book in a series. They'll do one standalone book a year. Do you work from any specific timetable? 
No, I have so many different projects going on, but I write every day from 6 to 11 for the most part, um, 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. So that's, that's the part of my day when that's sort of formulaic in terms of process. But in terms of, you know, and I do have deadlines in my contract, so that dictates a lot of this, Ryan. But um, other than that, no. See, now some people would hear that and say, oh, my gosh, early in the morning, that's your productivity time. But, you know, that that's morning radio. That's probably when I think a lot of us are, are just fresh for the day with new ideas. Yeah, because I can't I can rewrite or edit or read in the evening, but I can't draft in the evening. I can't write. That never works for me. Um, I am at my best right out of bed. Cause I've got these ideas. I've been dreaming, you know, I, that's when I work the best. Do you know when you begin going into a book, do you know the main plot points? Do you know the ending? How much outlining do you do in preparation? I'm just fascinated by the writing process. I know the beginning, middle and end of, well, I know the beginning and end of a book. Okay. I can't start a book until I know those two things. Right. I have to know it. And, and that can sometimes take me months or even years. And I have to know it intimately and confidently and have to believe it. Once I get that, yeah, I can outline a little bit. Um, and, then, and then it's just a matter of writing. But a lot of that free writing, that thinking, you know, that takes place over the course of months or years. It's an epic story, and I hear from many of the authors we interview on the program that sometimes you're taking an idea one way, but then your characters over the course of your writing become so well-developed, they sort of take over and lead you to where the story should naturally go. Have you experienced that in your writing, where the characters just kind of have their own mind? Oh my goodness, have I? I wrote a novel called The Crossover, and... It came out in 2014. It's it's now going to be a TV series on Disney Plus, which yeah. airs in March. But the ending of that book, the the ending that I imagined, envisioned, outlined, and wrote in the first draft was one thing. And then I had this dream, and in the dream, the main character came to me and said, "Your book is not going to end like that. It's going to wow. end like this." And I couldn't believe it because that ending was not what I expected, nor was it what I wanted. But I changed the ending because of that character coming to me, which, of course, we know, Ryan, was really me. Right. (laughs) It was the character, but the character was made up by me. It was an extension of me. So, So absolutely that happens. Why do you think that happens? Because I've had it too, just, you know, right. I write music and, and that's happened. It's like, wow, I did not expect the song to end that way. Is it just through the course you become so intimately familiar with your characters that you kind of give them the, the, the freedom to run around in your head? They move in with you. Yeah. They, they, they brush their teeth with you in the morning. <laughs> they have dinner with you. They, they lie down beside you at night and, 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 and say their prayers with you. When you're doing your job right, the characters move into your life. They become a part of you. And at least that's what happens to me every time. And it's why when I finish a book, I'm very sad, oftentimes in tears, because I know these characters have gone. I have to send them off into the world. And that's, that's a painful thing to do. 
I never thought of it put that way, that you're brushing your teeth and going to dinner with your characters. Like, that that's a fantastic <laughs> visual. I had never seen that before. Hey, it's real. It's real. <laughs> now, The Door of No Return as a title, which combined with the, the cover here, your designer did a fantastic job capturing that feeling. What does that mean to you and also in relation to the story? Well, without giving anything away, right. I will say that there, come, there comes a time in our lives where we walk through a door and or we are forced through a door and there is no coming back from that. In this case, um, the door of no return is a literal and a metaphorical place in this story. And so on the West Coast of Africa, there are these forts that were built by the Portuguese and the Dutch, and they were holding cells. They were holding cells, prisons, for Africans that had been captured and kidnapped and, 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 and taken um, unwillingly to, to, to America, to the New World. And so in order to get to the New World, they were, they were, on, they were put on ships. Well, there was a door, as it were, that Africans were marched through before they were taken down to these ships. And because they were never coming back, door became the door of no return. And so what does that door look like in, in the main character Kofi's life as a metaphor and as a literal experience? And I think that's one of the things um, I explore in this book. Now, you visited that area of Africa back in 2012. How, how did that trip inspire you personally and creatively? Did having a tangible connection to, to where you're setting part of the story, how, you know, how does that uh, empower you as an author? Absolutely. It, you know, going to Africa 11 times, to Ghana um, on the west coast of Africa 11 times, hmm. and walking on the beach and eating the jollof rice and the tilapia and, and seeing the coconut trees and seeing the palms and just listening to the language and hearing the music and just being in that country and getting to know people and, and falling in love and, and meeting friends. It just became a part of me enough where I felt comfortable and, and familial enough to write about it from an authentic standpoint. So certainly those visits impacted me tremendously. Yeah, and I don't know, as a reader, you notice that immediately, but I think it, it comes to you throughout the writing that this is a very informed perspective and it really draws me more to the setting than it normally would. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm honored that you got that um, because that was always my intent, the goal of writing is to make sure we're doing it from a place of authenticity and that, you know, you as a reader are not only informed about something new and significant, but you can relate to it, that you find your way, your connection to it. And that is always my hope. When you're writing a book for, you know, a younger audience that you're trying to be accessible and and relatable to all your readers. Are there particular challenges in that? Is that something that's that's in the back of your mind while you're writing? Oh, always. I'm writing for the me when I was 13 and 14 years old. Okay. I want to write a book that I would have wanted to have read when I was that young, and I'm writing for me now. So I got to love it on both levels. So I'm writing about kids, 
but I'm also writing for all of us. That's always been my goal. And then I definitely wanted to mention the uh, the literary program that you co-founded. It's it's Leap for Ghana. What what is that program about, and what does it do? Our goal was to provide libraries to a village in the eastern region of Ghana called Congo. And on our first visit there in 2012, we noticed there wasn't a library and there were no books. And so we began this campaign to bring books over because we know the power of literature. I know how books have transformed my life. And I wanted to provide this opportunity for these young people. And we eventually had about 5,000 books and we built a library and a health clinic. So it really became about, you know, really trying to, you know, uh, live my mission, which I believe is to change the world one word at a time. And then I want to get a mention in here, and, and you brought it up earlier, series on Disney Plus crossover. What are we going to see there? Um, you're going to see some of the book, the crossover. You're going to see some new stuff. Um, you're going to see eight episodes. You're going to see some amazing actors. You're going to see um, uh, the work of brilliant writers who are in our writers' room, and you're going to see it all, you know, on uh, on March 1st on Disney Plus. And I'm really excited to bring these characters, Josh and JB, and and mom and dad, to life. The Door of No Return is the new book. It is now available where books are sold. The author, of course, is my guest, Kwame Alexander. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Ryan. Appreciate you. Today's show is brought to you by Dollar Health Club. What we lack in amenities, we make up for in apologies. Dollar Health Club. And we are back on the big wake-up call, and time for my next guest, who is a New York Times best-selling author. The newest book, The Lords of Night, is the latest in the Rick Ryerson Presents series. We are going to chat with J.C. Cervantes, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you? How are things going where you are? Oh, things are good. I'm, I'm out on the road and doing school visits and, um, and events. And so, you know, got up early to do lots of, uh, lots of interviews this morning. So things are good. I'm in Houston and it's sunny and it looks like it's going to be a really beautiful day. Now, how does a school visit, how would that compare with like a regular book signing or a meet and greet? Is, is, is it more exciting to see all the, all the kids? Um, that's a great that's a great way to phrase it. You know, kids have so much energy and they are so raw and honest and ask such incredible questions. You know, sometimes I think there's not a filter. And so it really becomes a lot of fun. And I, I'm very energized by it. So because this is a middle grade novel, I was able to go into schools and talk to them about a writer's journey and what it's like being a writer and, you know, all the pitfalls and all the successes. And, and then, of course, a little bit about the book, too. So it was a lot of fun. Do you find that kids absorb these books so much that you need to be prepared to answer very specific character and plot questions? You know, um, sometimes, yeah, but it's really interesting, Ryan, because they almost always want to know more about the author um, or they want to tell you what 
you should do different in the next book, which is always fun. Yeah. Um, because those are always really interesting conversations. But yeah, they typically want to ask more about, you know, what do you like to eat and who are your dogs and are you famous and do you live in a mansion and who, what famous people do you know? And, and so, you know, a lot of the questions I get are related to my personal life. I really should have my daughter in here to do some of these interviews because she would probably take it in a direction that I never would have thought of doing. Yep, you're absolutely right. And, and it's really, again, though, it makes it interesting. And they ask the smartest questions that really get you thinking. So, so I love it. So the new book is The Lords of Night. Can you share with us uh, briefly what the book is about? Sure. So The Lords of Night is a spinoff of the Stormrunner world. The Stormrunner um, is a trilogy published um, also by Disney, the Rick Riordan imprint. And Ren Santiago, who is the protagonist of The Lords of Night, came onto the page in the second book in the trilogy, The Firekeeper. And when she came onto the page, I wanted to know so much more about her. She was so engaging and so mysterious and um and, and just felt like this outline of someone I wanted to get to know. And because she was not the protagonist, I didn't get to explore her in as deep of a way. So when The Shadow Crosser, the third book in the trilogy, ended, I knew she had her own story to tell. And I knew whatever was going to happen for her, that it was going to be this big, powerful moment, and that I was going to learn more about her history and the secrets that she was keeping even from me, as strange as that sounds. And so I went to Disney and said, I really need to do the spinoff. Like, I need to know more about this character. And so that's really why The Lords of Night came to be. Now, that's so interesting to me because I hear we talk to a lot of authors on the show, obviously, and we hear different approaches that people will, oh, boy, I love this character. I know all about them. I can't wait to take them on new adventures. And I also hear from authors like you, like, I love this character so much. I want to know more about them. Do you find as you're writing, the character is sort of creating some of the elements for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and this is a character that, you know, she sees the good in everyone and she's very zen-like and she's very patient and she's very calm. And yet she's the most powerful God born of them all. So, you know, this is about Maya and Aztec mythology. So in her particular book, um, The Lords of Night, now that she has her own quest that she has to complete, what's going to happen to all of that goodness in her? Is it going to crumble? You know, she is now tasked with keeping the the Aztec lords of night asleep and they're awakening one by one by one and she's not getting there in time. And so there is so much on the line and she starts to recognize a world that maybe she had been blind to for so long. And so we start to see her facade crumble a little bit and, and we start to see what happens to her under that kind of pressure and, and what will happen and can't, will the darkness overcome her? And that was a lot of fun to play with. So you're incorporating both Mayan and Aztec gods. How is it to to bring those two worlds together? Because it isn't done all the time, and it must be kind of fun to play with different kinds of, of mythology in one story. It is. And, you know, they were um, very different in terms of ancient civilizations, although there's millions of Maya in the world today. Um, and... And, you know, there's a lot of confusion, I think, over the Aztecs and who they were and, you know, what what the timeline was. But what's fascinating to me is you look at these these two ancient civilizations, these two cultures, Mesoamerican cultures, and 
they did not necessarily come in contact with each other. And you can even bring the Greeks and the Romans into this, right? And yet sure. they all, because they're trying to understand the world, created these pantheons, these gods of, well, there's a god of death, and they all have a god of the sea, and they all have a god of the sky, and they all have a god you know, on and on and on, which is fascinating to me and tells me so much about humanity that we all have this deep desire to understand the world around us and how strange these civilizations really did it in very similar ways. That's interesting you mentioned that, that people don't have an idea about the timelines because we we do get a sense that these are oh, these are ancient cultures and and going back perhaps thousands of years, but then you see something like, well, wait a minute, the creation of Harvard University was was along the same timeline as the Aztecs, and that kind of blew me away because you wouldn't think that's the way it is. (laughs) Well, I mean, from what I know, you know, that Mesoamerican culture, um, you know, that was really very, very active in central, what we know as central Mexico today, and obviously boundaries are always changing, um, but they had different periods, you know, so you have the classic period, the post-classic period, and, we, you know, we won't get into all the academic nitty-gritty of that, um, but just really, really fascinating. And, and then what happened when the Spanish conquerors came over and, and basically, you know, colonized um, not just the Aztecs, but the Maya as well, and right. then what happened to those civilizations after, just it's fascinating, and it's a part of history you know, that that I didn't get a lot of growing up and in school, and yet it seems like such an important part of world history. So many people, as you mentioned today, with Mayan ancestry, do you think that's been kind of underrepresented in, in young adult fiction? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we still, you know, there's so much, so many more stories around the world that need to be told that aren't. And you know, so many kids from so many diverse cultural backgrounds who still don't see themselves as heroes in the pages of books or, you know, on shows or video games or graphic novels or, you know, whatever the medium is. And I think it's critical that they do. And, and even for myself growing up, you know, I remember being told these stories by my grandmother and I, I was so excited to go into the library because I loved Greek and Roman mythology. And so I went into the library and I said, oh, you know, do we have any books on Maya mythology? And and the um, librarian said no. And I can remember, you know, being in the third grade thinking, oh, well, it must not be important if it's not in a book, right? That's how I saw the world. And it was really disheartening. And so I think that we definitely need, I mean, there are so many mythologies from all over the world with fascinating tales, which is why I'm so glad that the Rick Martin imprint exists and is able to give rise to those voices. That is disheartening just to hear you mention that. And I wonder just how many kids or even generations of, of kids grew up thinking, oh, well, I don't see myself or, or my heritage represented. And to think that means it's not important, that's, uh, that is heartbreaking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a, a 14-year-old character um, in, in, in your book. Mm-hmm. Do, and, and boy, just from what she's going through, that is a lot of pressure on a 14-year-old. But, but for some of that, do you, <laughs> do you draw on experiences? Because you're balancing, you know, just a, a normal 14-year-old kid with one who has to, you know, come into, you know, brushes with death and darkness and destruction. Right, right. You know, um, I, a lot of my cultural background comes into play. And so I grew up around a lot of mysticism and this belief in, in what we call magic, um, but not in the, you know, Western Euro um, sense. And so 
I think that that informs so much of what I do um, with the characters and with the stories that I tell. But, you know, remember, this 14-year-old is also, you know, her ancestors are brujos, and so she has the ability to manipulate shadow, and then she also is connected to the gods themselves. And so she is one of the most powerful godborns of them all because she has magic in her blood from both sides of her family. So that was a lot of fun to play with. What is it about magic? And I'm not talking abracadabra, but, you know, mag- magical things, it has such a universal appeal. I just remember as, as, as a teenager, I, that was mainly what I wanted to read about. You know, yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's um, I think it's about having uh, the mindset and looking through a lens of awe. Right. I think that we allow miraculous things to become normal because we see them every single day. But, you know, what if you never saw another tree again? What if you had never seen a tree and all of a sudden you see one, then it becomes the most beautiful, you know, formation ever. But because we see them all over, we think, oh, well, they're just normal. Right. And so I think it was Mary Oliver who said, and I'm going to botch the exact quote, but it was something along. She's a great poet. And it's something along the lines of, you know, our only job is to pay attention and to be in awe. And so for me, that's where the magic comes from. You know, can we be still enough? Can we be silent enough? Can we look for that mysticism, that awesomeness, that magic in the world that is so beyond our scope of understanding and so beyond our limitations as a human being. And I think it's the mystery that draws kids in or that drew you in because we don't have the answers. We don't understand all of that. And so, but there's this what if element, there's this, oh gosh, but what if it were real? But what if there was this and there was this power and there was this magic, you know, would that mean to the world we live in? And I think that's what draws the kids in is, is the mystery of it all. Have you seen or, or witnessed something yourself that you felt like there was no other explanation than this must be a magical event? Like, I know that the most disappointing event of my life was when someone gave me a magic marker and to find out, oh, this is just a pen. <laughs> Love that. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know that it was an event so much or something that I saw, but definitely something that I've experienced, right? I mean, yeah. even little things. Example. So how many times have you been thinking about someone and they've been on your mind, they've been on your mind and all of a sudden they call you or, you know, how many times have you had a feeling about something and it turns out to be exactly that. Right. So it's, it's kind of like that deep intuition. Um, but I have had, you know, different, I call it synchronicity and, and different elements of synchronicity play a role in my life. I think, oh my God, you know, five seconds to the left, one minute to the right, it would have been a different outcome, but it was it, the exact precision of that moment that yielded, you know, whatever the result was. And that's always what's fascinating is to kind of step back and see, you know, when you can look back with hindsight, then all of a sudden it becomes apparent all the pieces that had to come into play for you to become this writer or for you to become this, you know, talk show host or, you know, whatever it is. And that to me is always fascinating. And the new book is The Lords of Night. It's part of the Rick Riordan Presents series. By the way, Rick is is in our Three Timers Club. So if you see him, tell him hello and we'd love to have him back. Um, the author, of course, is... Uh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I will. I was just saying I will, I will absolutely uh, tell him that. Awesome. Um, the author, of course, is my guest, J.C. Cervantes. The Lords of Night is now available where books are sold. And thank you so much for joining me today.
Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure.